This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Usim, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Ann Greenhall, Deputy Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program here at the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. My dear friends and colleagues, Jeff Klein and Mike Yuseem are off for the night. So I'm here solo, and I have the really wonderful opportunity and pleasure tonight to interview a very special guest, and he is Rob Neighbors, who is Director of Policy and Government Affairs at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And his team develops and implements strategies to help mobilize the resources, political commitment, and public commitment necessary to achieving the Foundation's programmatic goals. And I should say as an aside that Rob is here tonight as a guest of one of our senior fellows on the Center for Leadership and Change Management, a senior fellow also at the Fells Center, and that is Elizabeth Vale. So, Rob, welcome to the show tonight. It's really such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for having me. All right. So, so Rob, uh, you know, maybe if we could just maybe start from the present and then maybe work backwards. How's that? If we start from the present, tell us a little bit about what your role is at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Well, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is a large organization, and we are largely centered around the countries that we do work in or with. So my team at the foundation is really focused on North America and influencing decision makers in North America to support the types of programs that the the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's fund, things like the eradication of polio, HIV, and the like, mm-hmm. and ensuring that there's governmental support for uh, their support of those those activities. Specifically in the United States, though, the the foundation focuses on education. And since the beginning of the foundation, uh, Bill and Melinda have seen education as being really the pathway to better paying jobs and a, and a better life uh, for many Americans, especially Americans that haven't had the opportunity to enjoy some yeah. of these benefits in the past. <laughs> um, blacks, mm-hmm. Latinx, uh, the rural mm-hmm. poor. So our right. education programs really focus on those populations. Oh, so good. So uh, already I have lots of questions. So in light of the uh, relationships sometimes strained in recent days with Mexico and Canada. Has that made your work harder at the Gates Foundation, or are you able to uh, navigate pathways because you're you're not representing the government directly? Uh, fortunately for me, yes. Uh, the, the <laughs> Good. Bill, Bill and Melinda have. Uh, created a fantastic reputation for themselves in creating this foundation. So our access to capitals hasn't really changed Changed. at all, given the current environment. That doesn't mean, though, that what is occurring isn't impacting us. I mean, the United States is probably the foundation's biggest partner on most of the activities we work on. It doesn't matter if it's global health, global development, the Department of Education with our education work, uh, the United States is core to the the goals that we've set for ourselves in the world. So continuing to ensure that the United States, the government is functioning, that their priorities match up with the priorities that the foundation has identified, and that we're able to tackle some really tough technical questions like how do we identify those cases of polio, the very few cases of polio right. still left in the world. How do we target those cases and eradicate the disease? It's in many ways it's like getting a needle in the haystack. Right. We need the United States operating at its at its best in order to achieve the goals across the country or very, across the world, excuse me. Very good. And now I understand from looking at a little bit of the press about you that you have had or you are in the brink of having some real successes in the area of both polio and H- HIV. Would you talk about those? Uh, it's I'm more than excited to, to talk about those <laughs> uh, those successes. Um, we are very close as a global community to 
being able to eradicate polio. Uh, We are hopeful (laughs) that we would be able to do it um, this year, but definitely within the next few years, uh, polio, we believe polio will be eradicated through the efforts of people like the Gates Foundation, but Mm. more importantly, organizations like the Rotary Club, our donor partners like the United States, um, the UK, Germany, um, GPEI, an international organization that that really addresses uh, polio. This would only be the second disease in the history of mm. humankind wow. uh, to be eradicated. And uh, am I smallpox. right? Smallpox. I was going to say. And so smallpox. it's a tremendous accomplishment for the world uh, when we are able to get this done. And through the good work of all of the partners, we actually know where the cases are. And it's really just a question of being able to get access to uh, to the cases and be able to administer the, the multiple treatments. But again, we're optimistic that if not this year, definitely in, in the next couple of years, polio will be eradicated. So great. How about HIV? HIV is a little bit trickier. I mean, mm-hmm. we've got a situation right now where um, the, the world has done... Uh, a magnificent job developing the the vaccines that are necessary to, or excuse me, the treatments that are necessary mm-hmm. to to treat people with HIV to the extent now that people can live full and productive lives with the with with the disease. With the, disease. Yeah. Uh, the issue that we are are facing right mm-hmm. now, though, is that these treatments can be quite expensive. Yeah. One and the treatments need to go on for the entirety of someone's life. Right. So the real challenge that we are facing right now is we can stabilize the situation if the the global funding um, remains relatively uh, solid. But in order to really uh, turn the corner on HIV, we really need to get an HIV vaccine. And we are optimistic that within the next eight to 10 years, we will be able to develop a, a, an HIV vaccine. Very good. And then how about distribution of that vaccine? You know, it's it's been amazing that uh, Bill and Melinda have uh, have wonderful relationships with the African countries where we are doing most of our yeah. HIV uh, work, and uh, and some countries in Southeast Asia. Uh, we have very good relationships with the drug companies in terms of ensuring the production of of these drugs, and we have. Uh, incredible relationships with uh, organizations like the National Institutes for Health, mm-hmm. which are at the mm-hmm. forefront of doing the research that are going, that's going to give us the vaccine at the end of the day. So again, we feel pretty good about the infrastructure that exists around the, the, the development of the disease and the implementation of the programs on the ground now. Oh, very good. Just let me remind everyone that you're listening to Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall, and I have the pleasure tonight of speaking with Rob Neighbors, who is Director of Policy and Government Affairs at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So, uh, Rob, you've mentioned just by through repetition, the word relationship has come up a lot in what you've uh, said so far. And I just like to just pause for a minute and ask you a little bit more about the relationships and partnerships that the foundation does have at the top of the hour. You said that the United States, did I hear you right, is the foundation's largest partner? Yes. And by that, and when we say largest partner, is that through uh, complementary funding or, you know, how how do you judge the size of a partner? Really naive question. No. Uh, the way the foundation operates is we have um, a limited number of targeted programs that we focus on. Okay. And uh, Bill and Melinda are are the ones that actually select those programs that we are focused on based mm-hmm. on data about impact that we can have okay. and how it will affect people's lives. So, for example, within the foundation, we have uh, a program that allows a, that focuses on polio. Right. And we focus on polio in a couple of different ways by contributions directly to countries that are trying to address it and helping those countries I'll make Nigeria, for example, yeah. build their uh, their public health system so that they have a system capable mm-hmm. of addressing uh, polio. We donate to international organizations directly, mm-hmm. uh, an organization like GPEI. Okay. We work with organizations like the Rotary Club okay. to uh, essentially advocate with governments 
to also donate money in the same ways that we donate money to this common public good. Okay. And that's really where our relationships come in. It's there, there are these two forms or two or three forms of relationships that we really focus on. Okay. Um, we have our service delivery partners in countries. We are a foundation. We don't run a lot of programs directly, but we have deep partnerships with okay. organizations like CARE or World Vision or the like who are doing phenomenal work in country to get the, the treatments out to, uh, to the people who need the treatments. We have partnerships with governments right. to try to, through the sharing of data and uh, demonstrating the return on investment uh, that governments can achieve by putting money into some of the areas that we also put money into, right. we can essentially crowdsource solutions. And so, um, for example, uh, we believe very uh, very highly in something called the Global Fund to for for HIV, TB, malaria. It is, a, it is a pool of funds where the United States, the UK, France, Germany, a host of other nations all put money into a general fund um, so that we can coordinate efforts to address some of these, these diseases in a more coordinated fashion as opposed to in the past, most nations wanted to address things in a bilateral fashion where it was neither the best use of the money right. and people were tripping over themselves. Things like the Global Fund. There's also something called Gavi, which is focused on the development of, of vaccines, uh, another uh, coordinated effort that the foundation donates to. So that is a second form of the relationships that, uh, that we have. The third, uh, the third form of the relationships that we have are really, is really around our advocacy work because we do operate in a lot of uh, different countries, but at, at our heart, we are – Bill and Melinda are Americans. We are an American foundation. Yeah. And sometimes if we are not sensitive, that is going to lead to outcomes in mm -hmm. other countries that we mm -hmm. don't intend. Mm -hmm. So we work, we work very closely with advocacy partners here in the United States and abroad to make sure that we are being – we're learning the best practices and we're being mm -hmm. as effective as we can in the locations that mm -hmm. we're working in. And those advocacy partners would be non-governmental. Largely. Yeah. Um, it's organizations in the United States like One. Uh, okay. One does a phenomenal job, and they're a very close partner with us on global health, global development, uh, gender types of issues. Mm -hmm. um, we have partners specifically focused on the political environment within Washington, D.C. So the uh, U.S. Global Leadership uh, Conference, uh, USGLC, is a phenomenal mm -hmm. partner in terms of rallying support between uh, NGOs, the private sector, and linking us together with um, with the government so that we can speak with one voice as a community. Around the world, we have those types of partners working together with us because I think the, the thing that Bill and Melinda have really sort of ingrained with mm -hmm. all foundation employees is that we are here to take on the big problems of the world, right. but we're not going to be able to solve those big problems on our own. We don't have all the answers and we can't be everywhere. So let's figure out who the best, smartest people are right. that we can work with to make common progress that we can all agree on. Oh, so good, Rob. Thank you for that. So as I understand it, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates have a uh, vision for tackling the world's greatest problems, but they're selective about those problems because they want to make sure that they can have an impact. And right now that there, there are eight that are key, and of those eight, the three that we've just touched on so far, polio, HIV, and education. And the main ways in which you get this work done is through relationships and partnerships, whether it's with uh, the um, those who deliver <laughs> the vaccine or the governments who you work with in order to get that vaccine delivered, or as you said, advocacy groups uh, who enable you to speak, you know, with one voice. So uh, we've talked a little bit about HIV and polio, and you mentioned earlier that education yes. is your chief effort here in the United States. So could you talk a little bit more about that? What what are you know what are you trying to accomplish here? Sure. I mean, it's I think our education work is in many ways uh, sort of our most interesting work. Uh, when we talk about the types of things that we are doing in the global health space, um, I am not a doctor by by training, <laughs> but it sounds incredible and it sounds 
like science fiction and it sounds like it should be impossible. <laughs> but as we've sort of taken on some of these challenges, in many ways, improvements in the education system across the country, and in particular for these populations that have proven over time to be very difficult to target solutions towards, are some of our toughest challenges mm -hmm. within the foundation. Mm -hmm. And so our education work is really focused on a couple of different things. One, we are active in a number of different school districts at the K through 12 level, okay. working through very specific um, types of curriculum or uh, other types of reforms that we think might be beneficial. Mm -hmm. Part of not just our education work, but all of our work, the center of all of our work is the collection of data. At the end of the day, we want to know what works. Mm -hmm. And even if it's hard, if it works, that is, we see it as part of our job to share that information with the field and with others mm -hmm. that this experiment that we were running in a particular school seems to show benefits. Maybe it will show benefits in other places mm -hmm. as well. So the first thing is to identify the things that work. work yeah. uh, the second thing that we do is we tend to work across systems to see if changes can be scaled. So one of the things that we have done uh, recently is we have announced investments in networks of schools uh, through our K-12 programs, where essentially what we're, we're doing is we're saying through these networks, here's a list of things that we've been able to demonstrate work. You and the individual schools are best positioned to know what will work in your school. Is there anything on this list of things that we, we've identified as working that might be interesting to you? And can we work with you to implement those types of changes across your school system? Got it. Got it. Mm -hmm. Third thing that we try to do is we try to um, advocate with state and federal government to okay. to bring these changes as much as possible to scale. And some states are doing a phenomenal job, and we've had close working relationships with them, and we've learned a lot from them. For example, uh, we've had a long uh, relationship in the state of Tennessee. They've, they've done really good work in terms of improving their system, improving their data system so that they know what's working and why it is working, okay. and trying to bring uh, programs to scale. We are active in uh, a couple of different states, California, Texas as well, um, at a much smaller scale than we are currently working in Tennessee. But we work with um, state legislatures to identify issues that as they are thinking about legislation and policy changes that might improve educational systems, we have ideas on what uh, may work based on what we're hearing from our local partners and based on what we are seeing from uh, from the programs that we are running in particular schools. Oh, very good. Well, Rob, I have a follow-up, but let me remind everyone that you are Rob Neighbors. I'm Ann Greenhall, and you are listening to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 132. So, Rob, again, you've said a lot, and let me see if I really get it. I like to be a good student here. So in working uh, with on educational educational work in the United States, First question the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation asks is, is, it, is our intervention working? And so very data-driven. Second is to work uh, beyond the school itself, but in a network of schools, so ideally in a school system. And then finally, trying to leverage state and local government in, in what you are doing. And you gave the example of Tennessee, where, where the foundation has been pretty successful. Can you give a concrete illustration of something that is working? Sure. And I, I guess the, the only thing that I would, I would say about that is we are partners with the state of Tennessee. Tennessee does all the hard work. Okay. Nicely said. Yes. They, so we, we have... We've tried to share data with them, uh, for example, around college success and things that are working uh, in terms of getting populations into and through college. Okay. They've made significant progress on their own objectives towards uh, their goals uh, to get people th into and through college based on some of the interventions that we've worked on jointly in, in the, the states. So, but... 
for me, the, the, the only reason I mentioned the importance yeah. of them leading is because at the end of the day, the decisions that are made about how children are educated, how adults are educated in right. some ways, those are some of the most sensitive decisions that occur in our country. Yeah. And they can only be made by the people in the environment that they are right. working in. Right. And I think we, people like the Gates Foundation, yeah. can get ourselves into trouble mm-hmm. if we are not careful about recognizing that local conditions matter. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter if they're political conditions, economic mm-hmm. conditions, social, cultural conditions. All of these things have to be taken yeah. into account to understand whether a solution is going to make sense. But at the end of the day, mm-hmm. it is the willingness of the local communities not just to accept the, the the challenge of taking on some of these these hard efforts, but to actually day after day go into the schools mm-hmm. and push boulders up mountains. It's it's not just a a pride in in what we are doing, but yeah. we couldn't be more excited about the efforts that Tennessee is undertaking right. themselves right. or the efforts that California or Florida or the other states that we have close partnerships mm-hmm. uh, with because at its core, that's what our partnerships are about. It's two equals working together and bringing the best of what we have mm-hmm. together to see how can we jointly solve problems. Oh, very good. Uh, and again, I can't help but ask uh, if the uh, federal Department of Education has had an impact on your work. They have, um, especially around our post-secondary work. The the student aid system in the United States is, uh, the the federal government is a large force Mm -hmm. in that. Um, One of the things that we've been spending a lot of time working um, with the Congress on in particular is uh, simplifying the financial aid form itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is, again, from... And the, that's FAFSA, right? It's FAFSA. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I forgot forgot where I am. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, we, we you're in the right that. place for that. <laughs> the, the evidence shows, the data indicates that one of the chief barriers to uh, people making it into college, even if they make it out of high school with the ability to, to go to college, is completing that FAFSA form. And oh, we can we can show you through the entire FAFSA process where people tend to fall out of the process. We believe very strongly, and the data has has shown mm. that if we can simplify how FAFSA is done, mm. then we can get more people the aid that they're already entitled to, that they're already eligible for, right. but they just can't make it through the application process. Sometimes it's simplifying things like the questions on the uh, on the. Uh, the form itself Mm -hmm. so that it's more Mm -hmm. easily understood. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's making collecting the information easier to collect. So, for example, is there a way that we can get access to the IRS data Data. directly from the IRS so that the students aren't responsible for sort of entering in information? The third thing, which we've, you know, I really have to, again, give a, a hat tip to many of our partners. The parents have a role in... FAFSA completion oftentimes, but they don't know the FAFSA process. They, Mm -mm. for for many of them, this is going to be the first time that they are going through this process. But so we've seen examples in places like Dallas where systems have been set up to to both teach uh, parents about the FAFSA process and to create uh, electronic reminders, things on their cell phones, where they can get a reminder. You know you have to fill this yeah. form out. You know you are supposed to give this information to your children. We think that something as simple as that, which in the technological environment that we're working in really is a, on the, the simpler side of, of vast technology problems that need to be taken on in the world, right. this is a simple problem. But it will have a tremendous impact on millions of kids that really do have a path to college but are being shut out because of a a process. Right. Very so. good. So, Rob, we've talked a, a lot about successes in, in education and in, uh, well, in healthcare through HIV and polio vaccines. And we're coming up on a, as they call it in the biz, a soft break. But could you speak to just when you think about your days, what's one of the greatest challenges that you face? Well, unfortunately, there's no end of challenges that <laughs> the, 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 the world faces. I think there's a, a couple of things 
if I could, one answer on the domestic side, one oh, answer great. on the global side. Great. On the domestic side, I think tr- trying to, the biggest problem that we are facing is how can we take a particular solution that we know will work in many school districts across the country mm-hmm. and scale that in an efficient way? How can we how can we do what works right. in multiple geographies? Right. Um, the the political system, the education system in the United States is tremendously complicated. Tens of thousands of school systems and schools that have to be navigated in order to get to the right place. Right. If we can find the right way to adequately fund our schools and the right way to share with those schools things that have been demonstrated to work mm-hmm. um, and to create a policy environment in which uh, policymakers are supporting schools and implementing those changes, I think we can make uh, we can make significant changes in children and adults who are getting uh, who are continuing their education's lives immediately. That's On the global great. side, I think the 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 real challenges that uh, that we are going to have. One of the challenges that I think is, is most interesting to me is how do we start to do more for women and girls around the world? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And Melinda, yeah. in particular, has been mm-hmm. uh, a loud voice and a great champion for taking on the really thorny issues yeah. that sort of have both economic, yeah. social, political components mm-hmm. to them. But until there is equity in mm-hmm. those types of issues, mm-hmm we're really not going to be able to take on the yeah. broader societal issues that are, are really troubling the world right now. So mm-hmm. it's there are opportunities as much as problems. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things that um, Bill is fond of saying, and he's right, is there are challenges that continue to exist. But if we can step back from any moment mm-hmm. in time, the world today is better off than it's ever been ever in its history. And we are making <laughs> progress. Oh, Rob, that's great. So, Rob, can you tell us a little bit about the job you had before you joined the Gates Foundation? Well, um, I worked in the Obama administration for seven years. I had a collection of different jobs while I was there. I joined the administration as the deputy director of the Office of Management and Budget, and I was confirmed at the by the Senate at the beginning of the administration on oh. that position. I moved over to the the White House proper about um, a year into my tour in the administration when I joined the chief of staff's office, and I was a senior advisor to the then chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel. Uh, When Rahm left the White House, I moved over to become the president's legislative affairs director. Uh, I then went on to become the deputy chief of staff for policy at the White House, And at the end of the administration, uh, there were some issues at uh, the Department of Veterans Affairs, and I was asked to go over to to see what type of assistance I might be able to provide uh, there. So I served as the chief of staff at the Department of VA. Oh, boy. All right. So maybe, well, first one question. How do you go about moving from position to position? Poorly. <laughs> so great. No. How does that happen? No, so, for example, I'm wondering if most of our listeners are thinking, well, you know, a job is posted on a site and you apply. But I have a feeling that it doesn't quite work that way. No, our jobs aren't really posted <laughs> yes. uh, in the, at the White House. Essentially, there, there were two things. One, um, even though they have different titles, the most of the jobs that I had in uh, in the administration sort of focused on problem solving. My job was essentially to go in to identify the root cause of a problem, to come up with a solution for a problem, mm-hmm. and then to figure out the implementation plan for that solution. And so when I was at the Office of Management Budget, I was focused a lot on budgetary solutions to problems. When I was at uh, VA, I was focused on management solutions to problems. Mm-hmm. And, legis- and when I was in legislative affairs, I was thinking mm-hmm. through legislative process solutions to policy issues that we were trying to deal with. So even though they are disparate jobs, they all sort of had at, at their core that same characteristic. And in terms of how you get these jobs, essentially the president comes in and says, 
you're going to do this now. <laughs> and because he is the president, you say, sir, yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. Okay. All right. So um, how how does the president know that you are so good at problem solving? That's interesting. I I did not know the president before the day I was nominated. Really? Yes. I had, I did not work on the campaign, and my background was on the Hill. I... I was very uh, close to the president's chief of staff because I'd worked with him in the Clinton administration and I had worked with him when he was a member of Congress and I was a staff member in, in Congress. And I knew many of many people around the president, uh, including mentors like Jack Lew and the like, who were able to say to the president, there's this person that we know that we think will will work for the agenda that you're trying to put forward and work with the the type of personalities you're, you're trying to fill the White House with. So our relationship was really started from from there. Um, about a week after I was nominated, I came back, and it was uh, one of the more surreal experiences of my life where I flew out with – I flew from D.C. out to Chicago to meet with the then-president-elect with some of the greatest economic minds of the country, Christy Romer, uh, Larry Summers, mm. Peter Orzag, myself, mm. Jason Furman, we were meeting with the president mm. to to give him advice on the state of the U.S. economy. If you remember, this yes. was the period yes. of time where we I were do. coming out of the Great Recession, right. and we were talking about what a stimulus package needed to, mm. to be. And the the notion that I could be sort of associated with that group of economic minds um, – it was just staggering for me. But yeah. the, the image that I have is uh, we, when we came out of the, the meeting with the president, um, we all were trying to get back to D.C. to get working on the, the yeah. stuff that we needed to get done. As usual, it's just, it's no it's November in yeah. Chicago. It's snowing. <laughs> we're we're taking the train to the airport and we're going through exactly what we're trying to figure out. So I'm literally – I'm sitting on the floor of the train taking notes because I'm the funnel for everybody's ideas and I'm the person who's going to try to implement and turn all of this into legislation. So as Larry Summers is saying we need to do X, Y, and Z and as Peter Orzag is saying, yeah, but don't forget A, B, and C – I'm sitting in the floor and everybody around us who the rest of the people on the train had no idea who we were or why we were talking so loud. Wow. But we were drafting it was the initial drafts of the Recovery Act, sitting me sitting oh. on the floor, working with these tremendous economic minds, having gotten the guidance from the president so that when we got back to D.C., we could hit the ground running. And honestly, as soon as we got off the plane, we all went back to the office and this is only a slight exaggeration. I don't think I left the office until the inauguration. <laughs> yeah, I believe that. So. Oh, so so Rob, for our listeners and for me, uh, how much of an economic and financial background is required in order to play that role? Well, it's it's interesting. I did. I was a political economist in graduate school, so ah. I have a I have a background in. In economics, and in particular, I was focused on game theory when I was in school. And so, where were you in school for grad school? The uh, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Ah, okay. So when I came to Washington, D.C. initially, I was actually hired into the Office of Managing, Management and Budget, this office that I ended up running. And okay. But I, I didn't come in through the budget side. I was not an expert in federal budgeting. I was... I had a knowledge base in statistics and because I was focused on quantitative analysis in graduate school and the like. And the trickiest problem that the administration was facing at the time was actually a very technically complicated statistical problem around the decennial census. The Clinton administration was proposing that we would get a more accurate count of the population in the decennial census if – we stopped trying to count everybody door by door and started using statistical methods to estimate populations. Okay. Because there are biases in certain districts and certain populations that we are, are, are completely aware of. And there's no amount of knocking on doors that are going to correct those biases. 
if you try to explain that to the layperson, that you actually get a better, more accurate result by not trying to count everybody than yeah. by uh, actually counting everybody, mm-hmm. they sort of scratch their head. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, the sense, the importance of the census in a political situation can't be undervalued because it is the basis by which reapportionment of congressional mm-hmm. seats are done and that lines are drawn for congressional districts. So on one hand, the Clinton administration was proposing to do something that was statistically very sound mm-hmm. and made sense to mm-hmm. everybody mm-hmm. who sort of understood, understood. the technical mm-hmm. piece but and was very dangerous from a political mm-hmm. uh, perspective to a lot of people. So they were looking for someone like me who they thought could take this census issue uh, break it down, be able to explain it to the policymakers in the White House, right. be able to explain it to people on the Hill in a way that they could understand this thing that didn't quite make sense. That was my entree into the budgetary world. And I had great mentors at the Office of Management and Budget who taught me the budget piece while I was there. So I served four years there. And then I continued my budget uh, learning experience when I went to uh, to Congress. And became a staffer on the Appropriations Committee, which deals with the, the money uh, right. that Congress appropriates every year. So by the time I became the deputy director of OMB, by the time I got to the place that I was kneeling down on the, the, yeah, the floor of right. a, a subway, I had been working in economic policy for about 15 years. Oh, very so. good. Oh, let me remind everyone that you're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall, and tonight I have the real pleasure and honor of speaking with Rob Neighbors. And Rob is Director of Policy and Government Affairs at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Oh, Rob, such a such a great answer now, because we're at a university here, University of Pennsylvania, the Wharton School. I can't help but ask, you were doing graduate work in statistics. Were you going for your master's or Ph.D.? <laughs> There's a story in there. <laughs> I, I, was, I was actually working on my Ph.D., and okay. I... Uh, I, when I was in D.C., I was originally the, – the job at the Office of Management and Budget was supposed to be my side gig. I was really going to be working on creating a database that I was going to be using for my dissertation. dissertation. This was pre-internet, pre-email, and large databases didn't really exist. And there's a great database at the University of Michigan that I was going to build on and add on, and and I was – I was going to work at night using data that they had at the Library of Congress, and I was going to write my dissertation. Uh, then life intervened. 30 years <laughs> later, <laughs> okay. yeah. that, that dissertation never came, uh, never came together. Okay. So. But look how the education served you well and opened up doors and opportunities that you might not have otherwise had. Is that fair? <laughs> uh, absolutely. Yeah. And it, it's, it is Fascinating. I remember the interview that I had at at OMB, and they are some of the smartest mm-hmm. policy analysts that you would find in Washington. And I was sitting in front of the person who would end up becoming my my big boss, and he said, "I just have one question for you, and if you can." All good analysts at OMB can answer this question. And I, I thought to myself, I don't know anything about the budget. He's going to ask me a budget question. I don't know budgets. And he said, my question is, I, I'm going to give you an example. We in the federal government are going to implement a new program that we believe will s- slow the supply of of access to drugs. We need to figure out how to measure the relative success mm-hmm. of that program. How would you do that? <laughs> I looked at him and said, and I really scratched my head because I said, not only do I not know anything about budgeting, I don't know anything about drugs. And I went, you're talking about illegal drugs, right? He said, yes, <laughs> yes I'm talking good. about illegal <laughs> drugs. Like, and I, I really was thinking, I'm just going to get up and leave because this is... I'm going to embarrass myself, but before I do, I'm going to throw a hail mary and like, well, clearly you would just you would just see if there would be a, a fluctuation in street price, right? He said, "Yeah, that's the answer. I think you're going to do fine here." <laughs> and that's a long-winded way of saying that um, I was very fortunate to um, 
to find a leader, a series of leaders in, mm-hmm. in OMB, uh, Ken Schwartz, Louisa Koch, when I was mm-hmm. very young, that took us a, a chance on someone that mm-hmm. they thought they could teach stuff to because he was relatively smart and had a general sense of what was going on. And it really, it really embedded within me both the the desire to want to be broad and know a bunch of different things so that I had the ability to have conversations with people about drug prices and be able to mm-hmm. be at least have a relatively good understanding right. of these types of things. But it also embedded with me, too often we are eager to give people the job who is perfect for the job today, oh, but point. might not necessarily be have room for a lot of growth. The reality is that um, the people that hired me took a chance on someone that they really shouldn't have took a chance on. <laughs> and it's it's funny, and I will close this story, but I, it's, I, I worked in OMB three times during in my, my career. And during my first go through, when I left, I was the I was the head of administration for the Office of Management and Budget. So I was the one that hired and took care of mm-hmm. all of the operations in the organization, including uh, hiring and human and human uh, relations types mm-hmm. of issues. So I was talking to my team as we were doing our annual hiring push, and we were going through we we go through the list of everybody who applies for a job at OMB, and we figure out who we're going to ask the different managers to to interview, and. Everybody had a, a mark. Some people had three interviews. Some people had one interview. I said, oh, that's that's really interesting. And they said, well, we have to figure out what to do with the, the one interview people. And we're like, what do you mean? Like, well, we just don't know what we what we, what we can do with them. We have to figure that out. I'm like, I don't I – st- I just still don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> what we're trying to tell you, boss, is that – Everybody who applies for a job at OMB gets an interview. Ah. But the people who are really good mm-hmm. tend to get three or four interviews. Mm-hmm. Everybody else will, will probably get one and we'll just see what they're like. And I said, but I only got one interview. And like, yeah, that's what we're trying to tell you. <laughs> that's so great. <laughs> There's a lot of one interview people out there that are still really good. And <laughs> it is so my great. I take it as my mission to find those one interview people <laughs> and ensure that they are put in the right positions. Oh, so great. So now, uh, Rob, you worked for the Obama administration, the Clinton administration, and... I worked for both Bush administrations. Both Bush administrations. Okay, so now... I, I work, In fairness, I worked for the second Bush for about two weeks. <laughs> okay, in fairness. Okay, for about two weeks. Now... Um, so this is a playful question, but it's a question I ask my students um, before they set foot uh, in class on the first day at the Wharton School in the University of Pennsylvania. I work primarily with undergrads, although in the leadership program we work with executives and MBAs and executive MBAs, but my sweet spot is the undergrad. So since you've worked for four administrations, when I, when I say the word leadership, like what picture comes to mind? for you? I have a couple of different people who okay. come to mind, people that I've thought have been tremendous leaders in my life that I've tried to sort of steal ideas mm-hmm. from. Mm-hmm. So one of my first mentors was uh, a guy by the name of Jack Lou. He was the director of you Office of Management him, yes. and Budget. And mm-hmm. I became his chief of staff and he went on to become, to do better things as the Secretary of the Treasury. And um, But Jack, despite the the august positions he's had. He's been the director of office of uh, the director of the office of management and budget. He's been a senior vice president of NYU. He has been the deputy secretary of state. He's been the secretary of treasury. He's been the chief of staff to the president. You could not ask for a more humble leader. Mm-hmm. You, when you talk to Jack Lou, you feel both empowered. Uh, you feel smarter, mm-hmm. and you feel like there's not a wall that you can't run through. Okay. And he does so in such an easy way that you almost forget that he had pushed you in that direction. So I've taken that as a form of leadership. Uh, I think of a, my my boss on the Hill, Congressman David Obey from Wisconsin, who is a very different personality than Jack. Uh, Dave Obey is one of the most 
fiery personalities that has uh, probably existed in Congress in the last 30 years. But there is nobody smarter and there is nobody more dedicated to the right things mm -hmm. than Dave Obey. And the, th the thing that I took away from him is Dave, David Obey was a fiery personality and he is among the people that I feel closest to him in my life. And I don't have that type of personality. The thing that I remember most about working with Obi is he was in a powerful position as the, the chairman of the House Appropriations Committee. He was, I believe, the third most senior member of Congress mm. when he retired. He had a reputation of having a fiery personality. But the reality is that fiery personality was only used against bullies. Oh, very good. He was the kindest person that you could ever want to meet mm -hmm. to staff, mm -hmm. to colleagues. But he did not tolerate people picking on people smaller than them. Mm -hmm. And that's when you got the Dave Obi personality. And I've adopted that. I mean, there are people that need to be protected. And that's leadership as well. Everybody... Mm -hmm deserves to be heard. Everybody mm -hmm. deserves an equal voice. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there are people who need protection to be able to vocalize that. Mm -hmm. Dave Obi taught me that. And so I could keep going on. Yeah. But as I've gone through my career, I've tried to identify from everybody that I've worked with and for, what, what, can, I, what, what can I take away? Mm -hmm. I mean, with, with Bill and Melinda, both the personal integrity that mm -hmm. they bring to every action that they take. Plus, if there is a way to blend uh, the business focus on data and knowing what works mm -hmm. with the, mm -hmm. the human heart mm -hmm. and trying to alleviate pain and suffering, Bill and Melinda have mastered that. Mm -hmm. And every day I try to get a little bit better about how do I take what I have in my head and focus it on what my heart should be doing? Mm. Again, another piece of leadership that we get directly from them because their foundation <laughs> is a reflection of them and we mm -hmm. are all reflections of them. So for me, leadership are the personalities that mm -hmm. really good leaders bring. Mm -hmm. And I'm a bit of a Frankenstein at some point. <laughs> I, uh, I, I hope one day to be as good of a, a leader as all of those people that I've identified and others that I've, I've not been able to mention. Very good. Well, just let me slip in. This is Leadership in Action. And we are talking about leadership on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 132. So, Rob, we're coming close to the close of our time together. Uh, so let me go just backwards for one more moment and then forwards uh, for th at the end of the show. So if I go backwards, when you were, let's say, 16 and a young young man growing up, uh, did you imagine that you would be working for Bill and Melinda Gates? You would be in four administrations? You know, what did you picture when you were 16? I think I was going to be playing basketball with Michael Jordan at <laughs> <Yay>! 16. <laughs> no, I... I, I <laughs> When I was at, when I was sixteen, I'd always had in my mind that I was going to teach. Ah. Um, that my my father was in the military. My mother was from a military family. Public service, community service, was something that we were sort of that was the highest thing that you could do. do. I thought my skill set leaned towards teaching, teaching. and. Mm -hmm. uh, when I went to the University of North Carolina, it was with the goal of at some point I want to. I want to be able to teach, teach courses. I want to be able to influence young people. That is going to be my contribution. And I haven't given that up. I mm -hmm. still I still love the concept mm -hmm. of shaping young people, mm -hmm. helping them learn from the experiences mm -hmm. that I've had, helping them clarify the decisions that they need to make as they were going forward. But that's that was what uh, that's what little Rob wanted to do was so was good. to teach. And then you were at Notre Dame, is that right? I was at Notre Dame. And studying statistics? Uh, no, I was actually <laughs> I was I was a less focused undergrad than many people <laughs> were. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do when I got there. And I initially thought that I wanted to be a theology major. Uh, until my father asked me who was going to pay me to think about theology. <laughs> <laughs> and from there, I sort of followed two passions that I, that, that I had, uh, government and international affairs. Uh, 
which is what I've always been interested in. Being from a military family, those things directly impact you. Yeah. And uh, this newfangled thing that I, my father told me was going to be the future, which was computer science. Oh, very good. So I, I got a double major in, uh, in computer science and government. Very good. All right. So now a little advice for me as a, as a parent. I have three children, and one of my children, a son, tells me he wants to make a global impact. So what would you advise a young person in his in his 20s who's uh, ambitious but not sure how you get from here to there? I would say a couple of things. One, don't leave don't lose the big dream. If you don't dream big, you're not going to succeed mm-hmm. big. Two, make a plan. And three, be patient in the implementation of the yeah. plan. That is one of the greatest gifts that Bill and Melinda have given us, mm-hmm. that for those of us who work in the foundation for them on the issues that they care about, they give us runway. They recognize that the problems that we are taking on are not going to be solved in a year. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the problems that we are dealing with today are problems that have been we've been working on since the beginning of the foundation, and we are making steady progress against all of these types of things. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to take on big problems, you need to be realistic about how long it's going to take to achieve the big solutions and what it's going to take. And, but you just can't give up. And so dream big because big things can happen as long as you have that plan. And as long as you are dedicated towards implementing Mm -hmm. that plan. And just from your biography, I might also add, be flexible and, and know the opportunity that crossed your path when you see it. Absolutely. I had, I have been very fortunate. I'm sort of a Forrest Gump-like figure in my (laughs) own life, and I've been fortunate enough to have really great people steer me, not in the direction that they wanted me to go, but in the direction that I needed to go and Mm -hmm. wanted to go in that I Mm -hmm. just didn't understand at the time. So um, as you were thinking about Mm -hmm. the advice to give you your son, Mm -hmm. the, the single biggest thing for me was... Just surround yourself with smart people and be humble enough to listen to those smart people because they they will know a little bit more than you, especially at the beginning. Oh, well, very good, Rob. I can't thank you enough for your time tonight. I'm Anne Greenhall, and you've been listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 132. Thank you, and good night. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.